Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in uh, verse 20 and go through 26. So last week we covered one verse. Now we're going to cover six. That's the plan. We shall see. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 through 26. All right. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So that's, that's and we're really going to camp out on the, the verse that most people would expect us to camp out on. Right, Philippians 1.21, that's a great verse, and, and we're going to talk about it for sure, but, but I, I really want us to look at this whole passage, especially verse 20, which we, we kind of hinted at last week, but then we're really going to pick up on this week because it, it does help us to on-ramp to verse 21. But the main point of this entire passage, like everything in this passage that we just read, is simply this, that Paul desires to live a Christ-honoring life regardless of the circumstances that he is in. The circumstances he is in, if it leads to life, fantastic, he will honor Christ. If it leads to death, fantastic, he will honor Christ. That's the, the main point of this whole thing. He, he, basically, he clearly states it in verse 21, but he has really shown us the nuances of that in all the other verses. So you're probably familiar with 121, which says, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. And if you're not familiar with it, then I hope that today you kind of get a taste of it. And it becomes kind of a life verse for us. It's so simple. So simple that it gets so overused. And whenever things get overused, then they're ineffective. But like, I hope that today we can really taste what this absolutely means. Because honestly, y'all, this verse encapsulates what the Christian life should be about. It's kind of like whenever you, you've been exposed to something so many times, it just... Like you've eaten the, it could be your favorite food, but you eat it so many times it no longer tastes good anymore, right? Or it's just kind of, eh, or, oh, that's good. Yeah, I love that, but you don't really want it anymore. I'm afraid that that's what Philippians 1.21 can become. As we mature in our faith, it becomes that verse where we're like, well, of course you should like that one, but we never really dwell on it anymore. This morning, we're going to dwell a little bit because this is what the Christian life should be about. 121. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Sometimes there's a tendency in our Christian lives that as we mature, we think that we kind of graduate from some verses. We kind of graduate from some thoughts that used to just wow us. That just used to amaze us. Y'all know me. I'm all about simplicity. I think simple is all you need. And so you see that. Uh, in how we do church, you see it, I hope, in, in how I do life. And if you talk to me long enough, you're probably going to think, oh, he's pretty simple also. <laughs> I just don't think it's too complicated. You know what I think we should be about? That our lives, to live as Christ and to die as gain. 
That should be the very tenor of our lives. So will you live? Live for Christ. Will you die? Die for Christ. Regardless, may you be only about Christ in all that you do. If Christ is all that people know about you, then they know the most valuable and extravagant and wonderful thing about you. So, I want to, but, uh, but this, this all builds. We've been building to it. So, I'm going to kind of walk you through the last few weeks. A few weeks ago, we, uh, we preached, uh, He who began a good work. And, and, uh, and that was in Philippians 1, 1 through 6. That was Paul's confidence that the work that God began, he would complete it. Right? So, that's how we started Philippians. Then we preached a, a sermon. We titled it, An Abundant Love. And uh, that was Philippians 1, 3 through 11. And that's where we looked at the radical gospel-shaped love that all Christians should have between one another. It's an awkward kind of love. It's a weird one. It's the kind where we text each other and say, I, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because I yearn with you with the affection of Christ. It's that kind of weird love that we've actually been given. Then we had a sermon titled An Abounding Desire. And, and this one, this was verses 12 through 18 of Philippians. And that was Paul's desire that in all things Christ be exalted, even in his imprisonment. He says, no matter what, as long as Christ is exalted, I don't care if people have other ministries and they're doing it because they're doing it in spite of me or if they're doing it alongside me. I don't care as long as Christ is exalted. I will be in prison as long as Christ is exalted. I mean, that's a pretty radical devotion. And then last week, we preached a sermon titled, The Saints, the Son, and Salvation. And we found out that the reason that Paul was so hopeful and confident is because, number one, the believers were praying, and number two, the Spirit was working. He had full confidence because those two things were happening. And so now that's all built up to this one point where Paul has been saying, okay, basically everything in his life has been shaped or is being shaped by a full understanding of a sovereign God who works through the gospel on his behalf. That's where you and I are today. You and I are where we are because God is sovereign and because the gospel came to you and because you received the gospel. If you're a Christian, then these are things that, we've, that as we've looked at over the last few weeks, they should be resonating with us. They're either going to resonate to where we say, Lord, I need to work in that, or Lord, now I understand why my heart beats the way it does. But the gospel has been shaping this letter from the beginning and ultimately, Paul declares that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it's not a standalone verse. You know, it is the overwhelming expression of the Christian heart. That we who have been saved by Jesus Christ, who stepped from eternity into time, who took on sin, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become righteousness, like that moment happened in our lives, but it wasn't a singular moment. It was the spark of a lifelong pursuit of God. In our American Christianity, we make, a moment, we make it a moment for scrapbooks. We write it in the front of our Bibles, and then decades later, we've wondered. And we've made Christianity something that is so comfortable to us. It's about our dreams, our desires, our aspirations, our comfort, and our preferences. That's not what saved us. What saved us was Christ. And Christ said, your life will be about me. So, I want to start with this. Because I don't, I don't look like 121 a lot of the times. I want to, but I don't. And let's get honest. Neither do you. Like in your best moments, you do. 
But in your worst moments, you don't. But we should be like this all the time. So, pastorally speaking, how do we get to verse 121? I got two things for you. Humbly and intentionally. This is how we should always approach all of Scripture, very humbly and very intentionally. Why do I say humbly? Because we need, these, we need to see ourselves as God sees us. We need to see what Scripture says, and rather than trying to make Scripture fit our lives, we should make our lives fit Scripture. And to do that, you and I have to quit defending ourselves and simply be humble and say, God, that's just not where I am. Because you know what? God works with a humble heart. Y'all take a look. Flip to hold, hold your place in Philippians. You know we're going to be back there. Go to Isaiah 57, 15. Isaiah 57, 15. And by the way, I'm, I preach from the ESV. So if you're in the NASV, if you're in the NIV, the, the King James Version, you should see clear parallels in all of these. But Isaiah 57, 15. It says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up. That would be God. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. And y'all, here's what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also, get this, with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So what that says is that God dwells in two places, the high and holy place and in the heart of the humble. You and I must learn that humility is a good thing. We must embrace humility. We must be humble because that's where God dwells, the high and holy place and the humble heart. So whenever we come up to Scripture, like we do today, we need to be humble. Whenever we're reading the Sermon on the Mount, we need to be humble. Whenever we're in Proverbs and Psalms and Revelation and Hebrews and Jeremiah and Numbers, wherever it is that God puts us in the Word, we need to be humble. And we need to allow the Word to work in our lives because this is a holy God transcribing to us what He wants us to know of Him so that we can be like Him. So today, humbly ask that God will cultivate in you a heart like what we hear in Paul. And then number two, intentionally. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So we align ourselves with the Word by being humble and by being intentional. And don't worry, we're about to push into Philippians. But I've also walked alongside many Christians, and I've, I've sat there too where you hear something, you're just like, but, but I am here and the distance is there, and what do I do with that? We humbly ask the Lord to cultivate that in us, and then we intentionally seek what He has given us. So intentionally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, Paul's writing here also, and Paul writes to him, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Sometimes that's what we feel. Like whenever we read Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain, and we realize we're not there, we're like, mess that one up again. We'll try again later. But Paul says to them, I'm not writing these things to make you ashamed. Here he goes, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. 
For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here he goes. I urge you then be imitators of me. And then later in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I, am in Christ, as I am of Christ. So what do we do whenever we come up to verses or to passages that, that we know are right, that we see the great distance between us, we humbly ask the Lord to cultivate that within us. In other words, grow us in that. And then we also say, Lord, I see that in Paul and I want to imitate Paul. This is what I need to do. I need to model that. Does that make sense? But we're not just imitating Paul. That's what 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says. He says, be imitators of me as I am imitating Christ. You look for the godly examples that God has put in your life and you look for the godly examples that God has put in his word and we seek to imitate them because they're doing it in a real world fleshly way. I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I see the way that Jesus responds to others and the way he responds to temptation and the way he responds to the trial of his crucifixion and we're like... Yeah, but he's the son of God. I'm not the son of God. I'm not perfect. I'm not the one who will not sin. But you know what? He gave us Paul. And he gave us the apostles. And he gave us other men and women who have walked this earth, who have treasured Christ above all else, and we should be imitators of them just as they are imitators of Christ. So how do we get to Philippians 1.21 at the end of today? If you feel and see that disconnect, we do it very humbly. Because Christ, our God, dwells in the high and holy places and in the heart of the humble. And we do it very intentionally by seeking to imitate Paul as Paul was imitating Christ. All right. So when we read passages from God's holy word that point us to him, and he shows us how it is that we should live to be holy, we need to be humble, we need to be intentional. Why? Because of this. It's really simple. He's worth it. He's worth it. Like, He is the holy God who loved us so richly that He would give us His only Son. Y'all, we have many fathers and mothers in, in our gathering. Would you give up one of your children for the sake of everybody else? Like, would you give up one of your own for the sake of your spouse? I know what a mother and father's love is like, right? I'm not trying to start a fight. I'm just saying. Like, I'm really trying to push into this right here. If you and I can love our children in this world with a limited, finite love, we might think it's overwhelming. We might think that there's nothing that can compare to it. But in eternity, there's unending love. There's infinite love. If I can love my kids and my wife so deeply and so wonderfully, and yet my love is finite, then how much more so can an infinite God love an infinite son without bounds? And so to give his one and only son, not just in a life here on this earth, but then it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And what he asked of us in response to the gospel is that we live a life that is completely obedient to him and making much of his name. He is worthy and he is worshipful. Everything of all that we do is in response to the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's why I really do love that song, He Leadeth Me. And then the song that we're singing after is Jesus Paid It All. Because Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. That's what 121 is all about. 
It's not about our preferences, our desires, our dreams, our comforts. It's about making Christ known above all else because we understand that He is to be treasured above all else. And I know that that resonates in the heart of the Christian. We're going, yes, 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 but because I'm there with you. I know. And so therefore, we humbly say, Lord, I need to grow in this. And what would happen if all the churches in all of creation right now began to live 121 out? The problem with our modern Christianity that we need to check is that we are at the center of it. Our Christianity, we come back to, here's what, here's what happened that day in my life. We start with the I instead of what God did in us. We make our Christianity, I know I've already kind of alluded to this, but this is kind of reorienting. We have to do this for 121 to make sense. But we make our Christianity about our preferences. It becomes about our feelings and how we feel in the moment and not our faith. We've made ourselves the center of our Christianity. No wonder it's so unsatisfying. If we are the center of our faith, which is where we position ourselves most often, if we're honest, we will be completely unsatisfied. We tend to live lives that are where our desires kind of dictate what our Christianity looks like instead of what Christianity dictating what our life should look like. So Christ must be the center. If he's not, humbly and intentionally ask him, Lord, you've got to be the center. You've got to be. Otherwise, I'm just going to tell you all, you will live an unsatisfied life. You will always wonder and worry because you're going to keep trying to hold things together. You're going to keep trying to piece it together. You're going to keep trying to use this good theology that you keep hearing about, trying to patchwork and make sure that everything is working. Whenever we just step back and we say, Christ, you're the center or you're not, and you've got to be the center. Whenever he's the center and everything in our lives orbits around him, then it doesn't matter what happens to us. We are held tight by him. So the tenor of our hearts should be that we honor Christ in life or that we honor him in death. And if we're not, join me. And whenever you just say, Lord, I need you to have, you need to work this out within me. This is one of those verses where everything I'm sharing with you is definitely, most definitely one where God's like, so Ricky, where do you sit on that? Am I at the center of you? Or am I kind of off center and you're trying to show me, you're trying, it's like we try to prove to God that we've matured enough that we can start to do things without him. There's nothing like that in scripture whatsoever. God helps those who help themselves completely unbiblical, nowhere in the Bible. You know what God did? He helped those who couldn't help themselves. He wants us to realize that we desperately need him. Okay, with that in mind, now go to verse 20. In verse 20, he says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay, I am not going to try to say the Greek words because I can't. Okay, I took Spanish. Take that back. It was supposed to be two years of Spanish in high school. Turned out it was a year of Portuguese, even though none of us knew that. Maybe the teacher didn't either. Um, then it was another year that was Spanish. And so there's kind of a collision in some of the dialects that I don't quite understand. Okay. Then, so I go to college and as a creative writing English major, I had to take, um, I had to take languages. And so I thought, well, I'm done with Spanish because that did not work out well. So I'm going to take French. And so I took two years of French 
And then these two Latin-based languages just collided and exploded in my brain. And I thought that while I was saying the French words that she was saying to me, I thought they sounded just like what she was saying. And I'm not going to do them for you because I feel like I'm swallowing my tongue whenever I try to speak a French word. But I'm not going to try to say the Greek word to you on some of these because I looked at them and I sounded them out. I'm like, you know what? It's just not worth it right now. So here's the meaning of the Greek words. Okay, let's do it this way. Because I do think that they matter. Whenever he says it's my eager expectation, it kind of, it's, it's this idea of straining the neck forward, right? So if you've ever been at the back of a line and you're, you're trying to see to the front and you're, you're, lean, you're, you're up on your tiptoes and you're straining your neck and you're really trying to see that one point right back there. You don't care about anything else over here. You've got this one point. You're just trying to see that one and you're straining your neck. That's what he means by eager expectation. Like that's the idea that the head is thrust forward. It's out as far as it can. It's looking to some distant point. Or I promise this matters. One commentator says that it's looking away with concentration and ignores other interest. So Paul's sitting there in this prison cell and right before he writes 121, he writes 120. He says, I am looking for it as far as I possibly can. And that's my desire. My desire that as I live and at the end of my life, I've completely honored Christ. Like he is so focused on that. He is ignoring all other interests. He's not worried about the jail cell. He's not worried about the trial. He's worried about one thing, that he will not be ashamed of honoring Christ. His next thing, he says he hopes. He says, it's my eager expectation. It's my next straining focus. And I'm looking right out here, and it's my hope. Now, if I say hope, like, I hope I have a cheeseburger today. And Chas isn't in here, so I need to make sure she listens to the sermon before tonight. But I hope I have a cheeseburger. Then that may or may not happen, right? And I hope that happens. I, I hope tomorrow's a good day. It may or may not happen. Regardless, we continue on. The, the original Greek word, the meaning for hope here, meant a well-founded hope. So whenever he says, it's my eager expectation of my hope, it's a well-founded hope. It's going to happen. Like he believes that this is, he believes that there is a sureness in what he's hoping, that he's not really worried about it may or it may not. Okay? So y'all, y'all are with me right there? So whenever he says, let me try and raise this up just a little bit more. Whenever he says, this his eager expectation and his hope that he will not at all be put to shame. Here's what he means. I want to make sure that I get that. I will not at all be put to shame or be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored. He means he's sitting here and he's so focused on the end that none of this in the present moment right now matters. The end is what matters. And in the end, this is what he knows he can do. He has a well-founded hope and an eager expectation that he's going to drive his life, that to live in this life will be to honor Christ and to die then will be absolute gain. That's the idea. He's not just saying, golly gee, I, I really hope that, that I can honor Christ with my life and I hope everything's going to be good. No, he is determined. There's an absolute Christ-honoring determination in Paul's life that come what may, it comes, and yet he will honor Christ. If you want to sum the rest of Philippians or all of Philippians up into a, to a little phrase, it really is to live as Christ. All of the book is to live as Christ. Because look at the next passage. In the next passage, he's going to tell them, um, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Then he's going to point us to Christ's humility and what that life looks like. And he's going to tell us that we need to live as lights in the world and what that life looks like. He is going to talk about how to live this life is to live for Christ. That's what he means by eager expectation and hope. Not, I'm going to give it my best shot. He's determined and he's focused. So, this is one of those moments where we can let the Word start shaping us. Just to kind of step back to that humbly and intentionally, just to kind of make this all connect. This is where we start letting the Word shape us. What matters the most in your life? Let the Word begin to shape. Because if we're honest, what is it that we, we truly treasure the most? Like What brings us happiness and joy? And we'd probably come down to some very legitimate things. My marriage, oh, I love my marriage. I love being married. It's awesome. Like, it's fun. I drive her crazy. It's a lot of fun. I love being a dad. I mean, it's fullness of joy. It's wonderful. It's absolutely frustrating and makes me feel so dumb in so many moments. I don't know how to do it. I love friendships. I love sitting down to drink coffee with a friend or to have lunch and to just have that that time whenever you don't have to perform, you don't have to answer questions, you get to just simply, I love friendships. I love our house. And I love having the enough wealth that God has blessed us with to do what we love to do and to be comfortable in that. Like, I love that. I love all those things. But those are good things. They're not God things. And sometimes those good things become the God things and they throw us a little off of center. And so we kind of look at what Paul is saying here. And we need to not worry about having the best marriage or the best kids or the best house or the best resume. We don't need to be looking with eager expectation at the end goal of the best retirement. It needs to be simply Christ and only Christ. And so we let the word begin to work within us. And we say, Lord, I, I'm, I'm, I'm being humble here. I don't know how to do that. Fix that in me. And then help me to follow hard after you. Whenever he says that, I want to keep going through verse 20. He says that uh, he has eager expectation. He has hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Did that ping a verse for many of you in Romans? Surely did. Romans 1.16, Paul wrote there. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But y'all, the, the Paul who penned the letter to Romans is the Paul who penned the letter to the Philippians. He doesn't tell them one thing and then tell them another thing. His life resonates with the centrality of the gospel and God. Because he treasured God so much and loved others so much that he would glory in the gospel, he would not shrink back from proclaiming the gospel. He sees that infinite value and worth of Jesus Christ. But y'all get this. We cannot proclaim a gospel that we do not live. And we cannot live a gospel that we do not proclaim. They go hand in hand. Right now, we, have, we live in a culture where we can proclaim a gospel and live lives however we want. Or we can live a godly life and yet never share the gospel. And yet biblical Christianity says that as hard and crazy and radical as this might be, that the gospel you proclaim is the gospel that you live, and the gospel that you live is the gospel that you proclaim. Through and through, we should be simply about the gospel. So I need that sort of neck straining forward 
well-founded hope that Christ is so central in my life that I will not be ashamed to live for him nor to proclaim him. And Paul has set all of that up. And therefore he says with this sheer determination for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. You can't say verse 21 without first establishing verse 20. Paul ultimately concludes that to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's two parts of this. Part one, living a life for Christ. I am not about to give you 10 bullet points. That doesn't work. Checklist and bullet points don't work for me. I love checklists for productivity and work. This is not productivity driven. This is a heart matter, not a duty matter. Okay? So, in the most plainest of understandings, what does it mean to live for Christ? It means that Paul is going to live a life for Christ. That's what it means. I know you wanted something really profound, but that's it. Your life, Paul's life, was about Christ. Everything in it and of it and about it and the flow would from and that would flow from it is about Christ. He wants to, to live a life, get this, that is defined wholeheartedly on following and making much of Christ. Everything else is negligible as long as Christ is first and foremost. If you knew Paul, you knew he treasured Christ. Is that what can be said of Ricky Massingo? To know him is to know that he treasures Christ. Is that the first thing that people would know about me? Is that the primary thing? I guarantee you they know I love my wife, they love my kids, but they know that I treasure Christ more than that. So it goes on. I think what Paul Paul was really saying is what Jesus told us in Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We can lay up our concerns, our anxieties, our worries, our preferences, our conclusions, our opinions. We are called to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Whenever your life seeks His righteousness and His kingdom first, then you begin to live as Christ. It's in a checklist thing. This is a heart orientation. God, help me to seek your kingdom first, your righteousness. And then everything else flows from that. I'm not against sermons about parenting. I'm not against sermons about marriage. I'm not against sermons about, um, you know, this activity or action. I just think that whenever the gospel gets deeply rooted and seated first, then those things begin to work themselves out as well. We kind of get the cart before the horse in many ways. So Christ is what you should seek first. When we seek Christ and live to honor him, God will begin to align everything else in our lives. Whenever Christ is first in his glory and making much of him, then we have that fixed point and we know that at the end of my life, I don't want y'all talking about me at the end of my life. I hope that at the end of my life, more people will have known more about God and are living more for him, for his glory, for all of eternity. That's what Paul says at the end whenever he says that he's going to continue with them. So there's ample cause of glory in Christ Jesus because of his coming to them again. The end of his life is that he wants that there are more people who are worshiping God. More people who are called to holiness and living for God. Like, that's what our lives should be about. And if they're not about that, then what are they about? Nothing. I can have the best marriage, the most well, um, well-behaved kids, and if Christ is not at the center, all of that's gone. We know it is. 
We do know that marriages can and do fall apart, unfortunately. We do know that kids, though raised with all the right behaviors and attitudes and ethics, still do not live a Christ-honoring life. We know that these are realities. And yet we invest everything into those. Seek first His righteousness and His kingdom, and He will begin to align all these things. You want to be a better dad? Seek Christ. You want to be a better husband? Seek Christ. You want to be a better wife? Seek Christ. You want to be a better missionary? Seek Christ. You want to be better at anything? You seek Christ, His righteousness. He will line everything else out. we got the wrong goal in mind. I want to give pastoral comfort real quick because I know that we have children who have grown up in the church by Christian parents. I know that my three, they're singing the songs right now, but there will come a moment whenever their faith will have to be their own. We pray for them, we love them, and we trust a sovereign God. Right? Proverbs, whenever it says, raise a child in the way he will go, and when he is older, he will not, or he will, he will not stray from it. That's Ricky's version of it. But though they may stray for a while, God is good and his word is true. So just keep praying. Just take comfort. Take hope. You did nothing wrong as long as you gave them Christ. Problem in our lives, though, is we're too busy looking at the things around us instead of the throne that's above us. I've been saying that for the last few weeks. So, so we want to get that orientation Paul says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me in verse 22. And then we were having lunch with the Bairds the other day, and, and uh, Brooke says, yeah, but what is that fruitful labor? And I was like, well, I don't have a good answer for you, right? Paul's going to tell us what it is for him, but I don't know what it is for Brian. I don't know what it is for Philip or Jared. I don't know what it is for Brad or Paul. Like fruitful labor in each of our lives is going to look a little bit different, but they should all have one goal. What is the fruitful labor? The fruitful labor is this, to live for Christ. To live for Christ means to be caught up into something that is so much larger than your own life and your circumstances. It's about a kingdom that's much bigger than your own kingdom. And it's a kingdom that will stand for all of eternity. It's completely overseen and ruled by a king who never fades away or sleeps. And it's by a king who sees and rewards all that we do in his name. So what does fruitful labor mean for you? It means that wherever God has put you, you honor Christ. Whatever that looks like. For Paul, God put him in prison. I'm going to make much of Christ in prison. He puts him on a missionary road. He's going to make much of of Christ there. If he puts you uh, in a school, you make much of Christ there. If he puts you in relationships with friends, you make much of Christ. Christ is ever on our lips and the tenor of our lives becomes, becomes nothing but Christ over and over again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You, you can just listen. It says, therefore, if anyone, that's you, that's me. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Amen. Praise the Lord. Wonderful, right? And it goes, it says, the old have passed away. Behold, the new has come. It says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us all of us, the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ, I'm sorry, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us a message of reconciliation. Get this one, listen. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That's what it means to be fruitful laborers. God has given you and I 
the ministry of reconciliation. God is making his appeal through us to an unbelieving world wherever it is that he puts us. Wherever it is he leadeth you, Christ must be on your lips. Wherever it is that he brings you through, whether it's by still waters or a raging sea, whatever circumstance or situation it is, the duty of the Christian is to be an ambassador for Christ because God is making his appeal through you to an unbelieving world. That's what it means to live for Christ. I can't tell you that it means you do this or this or this or this. I think in churches we've done a great disservice for decades. Well, everybody, everybody should be going to China right now. Everybody should be hitting the seas and being missionaries on foreign soils. They're not. Because not everybody is an eye, not everybody's an ear, not everybody's a belly button. Right? Everybody uniquely, wonderfully designed to do ministry in the context that God is going to do ministry through them to an unbelieving world. I think that we need missionaries overseas. I pray that we send out some from our church. We need missionaries in this city because they are lost in this city. You need them at your work. You, or I'm sorry, you're a missionary at your work. You're a missionary uh, in your friendships. You're a missionary wherever God puts you to live as Christ. That's what it means. Fruitful labor, always making sure that others know that there is a God who loves them so deeply and that that is why your life has been changed. You can summarize... Uh, what, what would that be like? 20 through, I don't know. Sorry, 21. For, for to me, I lost my place, I'm sorry. For to me, to live is Christ. And you can do like a, a dot, dot, dot. And he, he finishes it, to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So if we live in the flesh, fruitful labor means to live for Christ. Okay, so then, this is going to be really hard. What does it mean that dying is gaining Christ? Okay, so take a look again. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. This is incredibly important. It means that everything that we experience here, no matter how wonderful, no matter how good, no matter how pleasurable it is, no matter how God-given it is, no matter how much we see the sovereignty of God in all those things and enjoyable and pleasurable and mountaintops, no matter how much all of this is, none of it compares to dying and being with Christ. None of it. I can't wrap my head around that. I love the life that God has given me, and I don't think that's unbiblical. He came that we may have life and life more abundantly. He has blessed all of us with so much in our lives. And yet every joyful moment in your life compares nothing to being in the presence of Christ. It's okay to say, God, I don't understand how that's possible. And watch what he does with your heart as he just kind of expands. You start to have kind of this yearning and this growing desire that as you mature as a Christian, you want to be in his presence so much more. Okay, y'all flip to, to Revelation. Uh, I'm, I'm moving through my notes here because I want to I get you here. Revelation 21. This is why it's going to be better to be with Christ in his presence. Excuse me, in his presence. Because Paul said, to live as Christ, I will toil for him as long as I'm here. But to die, oh, that is gain. In Revelation 21, we're going to read verses 3 through 7. And tell me if this is not what you really want. Okay? Revelation 21, verses 3 through 7. The new earth, the new heaven, the new creation. Then John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, God, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Is that not what you want? Right now, don't, I'm not diminishing what we have here in this world by having the fullness of the Holy Spirit within us. I'm magnifying what we're going to have in eternity. In eternity... We will finally see God the Father who has loved us so deeply. We have not seen Him yet. We're going to see God the Father who loved us so deeply from eternity that He would send His only Son. We're going to see Him. We're going to be in His presence. Not we feel His presence. We're going to be in His presence. It says elsewhere in Revelation that there will be no sun because God Himself will be the sun. Like His radiance will fill the new earth. I want that. We're going to finally, you and I, see God the Son who has redeemed us at such a great cost to himself. We talk about Jesus in history. We will see him. We're going to see the one who died for us, whose hands and feet were pierced for us, whose side was struck for us, whose beard was plucked for us. We're going to see him face to face. And we're going to finally see God the Spirit in the heavenlies with the fullness of the Trinity. Our minds can't grasp the Trinity right now. A.W. Tozer says that's proof right now that we didn't make this up. There's no way that we would logically come up with a triune God where all three are fully God and yet all are one God. He says there's no way we would ever come up with that. We are going to be caught up into something that just blows our mind. Like, it will be so overwhelmingly worshipful. We're going to be in His presence. And that God, it says, will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And that we who have conquered, those who we have, we've, we've made it through life, we lived for Christ, we have died and we've gained all of who He fully is. He says that we will be known as His Son forever and ever and ever. Well, why doesn't it say daughter? Because in that culture, to be the son means that you got the full inheritance. For us to live means that we should live lives that are radically Christ-oriented. We can't be ashamed to do so, but then when we die, we gain something so much richer than anything this world could ever afford. So with all that in mind, Paul says, I'm hard-pressed. I, I want to live for Christ here. I want to die because I want to have God here fully. And he says in verse 22, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. For me to stay would be fruitful. It's going to be fruitful. I want to live for Christ. But I get so much more right here. And then he concludes with this, and this is pretty quick. He says, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. That's where I kind of want us to stop today. 
Wouldn't it have been nice, cross life, if whenever you were saved, you were just simply zapped straight up to heaven? Like, that would have been wonderful. You have the, the glorious experience, you have the joy, you have that fire, you've been saved, everything's about Christ, and then, you know, like a week later, you're like, oh. Mm. Right? And then we live lives like that, where we're going up and down. It would have been wonderful if whenever Christ saved you, He didn't just save you in the moment, He saved you, like, from this world, and He just yanked you right out of it. And you know why he didn't? I think Paul captures it right here. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary. Paul's desire is to go be with Christ. He says, but it's more necessary that I stay here because you need to grow in your faith. Listen, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Why? For your progress and joy in the faith. We have work to do. Your desire is to be with Christ. Absolutely valid. That means that God has done a work in you. But it's necessary that Paul remain so that the Philippians could grow in their faith. It's necessary that you remain here so that others can grow in their faith as well. So that's where we can kind of take from this. Like we can go from here and how do I begin to live a life that is solely centralized on Christ? We begin to look at those who are around us and we understand that while my desire is to be there, I am here right now because I can invest and I can grow and I can, for God's glory, point other people to his throne. He has his desire, but he knows what is necessary. And what is necessary is to live for Christ. All right, so what if, what if that answers everything that you and I do Right here and now. Like that one verse, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Like our whole life should be about that. That should be the tenor of the Christian life. You can look at Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. Go there. That's how we're going to conclude. Because what does it mean for you to do what is necessary? What's Paul thinking? What's Paul actually living out? What is necessary? Matthew 28 captures it and then then we're going to sing a song of reflection and we're going to go. In Paul, uh, I'm sorry, in Paul 28. In Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, So cross off, here's what's necessary. Desires to go, here's what's necessary. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Acts 1-7, Jesus says, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Y'all, we all have Philippians in our lives. Our desire is to go. And yet we are seated around Philippians day in and day out so that we can walk alongside them and show them Christ. I have this heart within me. I hope it's within you as well. That is our eager expectation hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death for me, for to me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Are we singing a song of reflection? Um, And really just honestly dwell. I don't have three points for you. I don't have 15. Dwell. Christ, be the center of who I am.
and make that my eager expectation. Lord God, we love you. I pray that today was not just an academic study, a scholarly looking at at the word, but Lord, that it is heart transforming. That the spirit that moved men to pen these words is the spirit within us making them applicable. And when we don't know how to pray about them, your spirit is within us groaning with words too deep for understanding. And God, you are on the throne interceding for us. We have a work that that was begun in us that you will bring to completion. Because you are good. Lord, help us to be obedient and help us to live for you and to die for you. Help us to know what that means. Amen.